when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 83 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. This week, in honor of Veterans Day, we'll be talking about what we consider to be one of the most affecting war movies ever made, Black Hawk Down, Ridley Scott's adaptation of the Mark Brown account of the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu. This episode may be a bit more somber than usual, because there's really nothing funny about this movie. It's unflinchingly brutal in its depiction of war and its effect on those who wage it. As a veteran myself, I am thankful that films like this exist because they provide us with context to offset the number of films that focus more on the glory of battle. And I want to say thank you to all my fellow veterans who have served. Well, Patrick, now that I have sufficiently depressed everyone listening to us, (laughs) I would love to hear just a broad overview, not really any specifics as we'll get into that. But I'd love to hear what you thought about the movie. And I don't even know, uh, was this your first time seeing it or had you seen it previously? Well, let me first say thank you to all the veterans out there as well, including yourself. Thank you for serving. I'm one of the proud people that uh, absorbed the freedom and I'm grateful for it. And uh, this time of year is always a great reminder of uh, what that freedom costs. So thank you for that. Um, But to answer your question, yes, this was actually my first time watching it. I was... um, not seeing it on my radar at any given point uh, before you mentioned it a couple of months ago. And I'm really glad you did because this was, um, I'm, I think like a lot of people, I have blind spots, but I think I'm more prone to having blind spots of things that are more recent, like in the last probably 15 to 20 years. And most of us have the, the classics blind spot. Haven't seen Casablanca. You haven't seen Gone with the Wind, you know, those types of things. But I'm one of these guys that I think over the last probably three or four weeks have more often than not, not seen a movie that we've covered. So that's been really, really cool for me. So watching Black Hawk Down for the first time was something of a experience for me because I didn't really know how to receive it. I mean, it starts out in a way that is just very much like you're in for a ride and that ride is not going to be lighthearted at all. And I didn't expect it to be, but when I think of Ridley Scott, I think of action. I think of lots of explosions. I think of lots of energy and lots of just, um, just boom, boom, boom everywhere. And seeing how he told this story of which I didn't know a ton about. I mean, I was in high school, I guess, when this, uh, when this, when this event took place. And for me, as someone who never served and, who was just a a freshman, sophomore in high school when this was taking place, it was all quite literally foreign to me. All I saw was depictions on CNN, but I was too busy worried about Zach and Kelly and, you know, if they were going to break up this week on Saved by the Bell. So getting to see this depiction as an adult with not only an appreciation for movies the way I have now, but also an appreciation for history, I was very, very moved by this. This was a, this was a movie that, didn't stop for me. It was a movie that didn't give me really much rest. Uh, There are a couple of key moments that I found solace with the characters. 
in some of the quiet, but it was never very long before guns were firing and, and explosions were happening and people were yelling and it's just, it was, it's, it was an experience and it's not something that I would say I'd want to experience again, but from a movie standpoint, a movie experience, I definitely want to revisit it. Uh, not really anytime soon, but, 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 but soon in you know maybe the next year you know sooner rather than later so but I really enjoyed it I mean I, as a, as a film I thought it was fantastic. Well, that's really good to hear. I'm very happy that you enjoyed it and had a good time with it. As far as I mean, appreciating it goes, it's it's hard to talk about that and say we're and use words like enjoy when we talk about this movie because there's not a lot to enjoy about it. I mean, to be honest. The cinematography, of course, we'll discuss is is enjoyable to some extent, but it's not a movie that leaves you with a very happy feeling, even though that it does give you some some hope and it does offer you some solace. As you mentioned, there are those moments in it, but it's it's a it's a depressing, hard to watch film because it gets down and dirty in in the stuff right with the with the group of guys that are in this and it doesn't let up i mean it is relentless if if a movie has ever been relentless it is a movie that is relentless it just it doesn't it doesn't pause to give you a bunch of moments of levity you know there there are one or two maybe <laughs> maybe i mean like they're really brief um but it doesn't doesn't do much of that it it lets you feel like you're there uh, in yeah. a lot of ways. And so I, I've always appreciated this movie quite a bit. I remembered really liking it and I hadn't seen it in probably a decade. And I'm going to, I'm going to promote this podcast because it was their episode that actually triggered my rewatch of this uh, LSG media, the science fiction film podcast. They don't just do science fiction anymore because they've covered so much of it that they're running out. But um, those guys, uh, Dean and Matthew, and Josh and Jessica over there, they do great stuff. And they had covered this film and it was a really unique episode for them because they are jokers and they like to just crack up the whole time. And it, it was hard because they couldn't do that. I mean, they were, you know, they, they treated this material very respectfully and they have a wonderful episode with a lot more history in it than we're going to cover. So I'm just recommending that podcast for listeners who would love to hear a really deep look into more of the specifics about like the background of the army. Cause they have a, a Josh on that podcast as an army vet. Uh, and it's just, it's good stuff. And so because of that podcast, I rewatched it. And when I rewatched it, I was blown away by how I felt about it. Um, so yeah, here we are using it as our, our veterans day movie, which I think will be a thing going forward. Right. Might as well. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I want to mention before we move forward is I was talking to my dad this weekend while we were um, on vacation together. And I was telling him that we were covering the movie this weekend or covering this film. And he and I were talking about just the, he was giving me his perspective from an adult point of view, because, you know, he was not my dad, you know, in 93 hasn't stopped being that. But as we were walking through it, I said, you know, the thing that I'm pulling away from this, and we talked about this on biopics is that I think movies like this, Give us an opportunity to experience. I think you mentioned that. Experience the story. It's We don't go into the theater for movies like this to be educated. Yes, there are facts that are 
made known to us. And there are pieces of dialogue that were truly said, but movies in, in our podcast really sort of caters to this. The experience of a movie is what I think makes a biopic very successful. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting to with biopics is if I can, if I can separate them from the history and look at this as what's this movie trying to get me to experience, then that's where the quote enjoyment or the success of a film probably lives the most for me personally is did it allow me to experience what it was intended to? And I feel like it did. I didn't necessarily feel like I, I mean, I knew in broad strokes more about this conflict in Mogadishu and I was and am encouraged and curious to know more about the details, but Ridley Scott did what I think he wanted to do. And that was to make me experience what these individuals were feeling, what they were going through, how they were acting and reacting to what was going on around them. And the, the tone, the, 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 the attitudes and the mindset, I think is something that movies give power to, because we can't necessarily get that from just reading a history book. We get the facts and figures. We say, this is what happened. President Clinton sent these people in and there were Rangers and there were other people in the, all this stuff. And this guy was in charge. And it, you don't get that experiential, like, I want to understand what was going through the head of these helicopter pilots as they were going down. Right. And when you see that on screen, you get a piece of that. And so I can definitely appreciate biopics from that vantage point. Yeah, me too. I, I agree. And I mean, we're both big biopic fans in general. And and Ridley Scott does do a great job in this one of being extremely accurate to the source material. Now, the source material is a book written by Mark Brown, uh, which was called Black Hawk Down. I think it has a subtitle as well. That was based on, I believe, like a 24-episode uh, of articles, uh, 24 articles that had come out about this issue or this, not this issue, but this event. And it, it was, it was done in a way that tried to be almost exactly like the story and walk through that story. Um, the first thing I want to hit on real quick though, is the cast. So if you're watching this movie for the first time in your life, like you did, Patrick, I, yeah. I can only imagine what it must've felt like to see this cast because they are what 15 years ago, almost now 16, <laughs> 17 years ago. So, so let me just go through some of these names, right? This is who is in this movie. And a lot of these are bit parts. Like we were talking about off air. One of the, one of the characters, one of the per- people in this movie is Tom Hardy, right? That Tom Hardy. Yeah. This is his de- debut feature film. You have to almost look it up to figure out who Tom Hardy is because it doesn't look he like wasn't Tom. talking like this through no. a really? and it doesn't look like Bane in this it movie. So, like so um, yeah, you got it. You, get, I mean, it's crazy. So we have Josh Hartnett in the starring role, right? Good old Josh Hartnett, who's in our eyes back from the dead. We we covered the faculty a while back in the minisode, mm-hmm. and uh, he's just kind of disappeared, sadly. But but boy, was he big in the late nineties and early two thousands. Just a the, he was the heartthrob at the time. Mm-hmm. We got Ewan McGregor, not even, not again, not in a <laughs> the major young role. Padawan, the young Very, Padawan. Yeah, this was was this before the prequels? Maybe during, or I guess it was maybe it's after. It was the no, late nineties? This, this was after because uh, episode one came out in ninety nine. 
So then it would be during. It would be in the middle of them. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we have Ewan in this in his role. Um, we have Tom Sizemore, probably Gosh. my favorite performance in this entire movie, uh, playing McKnight, who's the the Humvee lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Eric Bana, the playing, Hulk himself, playing Hoot. I, I don't know if there is a more manly man out there in movies than Eric Bana. I mean. We're eventually going to cover Troy too, and I'm just going to gush over him in that one as well. I need to see <laughs> Munich. I haven't seen Munich, and I've heard I've he's Munich. like the lead guy, right? And he oh big... my word! If you want to talk, okay, let's just take a step back and let's put let's put Blackhawk down like right here. If you're if you're watching this, I mean, I'm like right above my head in terms of like like no levity, and then you have like you have like Manchester by the sea, which is like kind of near my, my feet in terms of the levity. Yeah. And Munich is like right in the middle. So this this is a hard, that's a hard movie to watch. I want to revisit it because the last time I saw this, it was a late night. I'd had some really bad nachos in the movie theater that I was eating and I (laughs) got really sick the next day. And so I had this whole conglomerate of like, Oh, this is depressing. And oh my gosh, I'm feeling really sick. And then the next day, final destination was on TV. So I don't even know what was happening in these, that 24 hour period where I just got incredibly like engrossed with depressing things. So, but all that to be said, Munich's a fantastic movie. I really, I remember enjoying it or at least enjoying the story. So for future, you know, we're going to put that down, but I I love Eric band. And I think he's, Mm -hmm. he's wonderful in this um, as a Delta guy. We Mm -hmm. have William, William Fitchner, who is a guy who no one is going to know by name, but every single person in the world will recognize him when you see him. Uh, he's got the that, blind guy uh, from contact. <laughs> he's got that face, right? Yeah. And his longer hair kind of sets him apart. Uh, Sam Shepard is in this movie. Love Sam Shepard. Chuck Yeager from the right stuff. Dude. And uh, he is totally that swashbuckling. Oh, yes, he is just aviator guy. I mean, I loved him in this. I did too. Um, we have Jason Isaacs who was, is now right now, Captain Lorca on Star Trek discovery. Uh, he's great as Captain Steel. He is just wound tight, man. Uh, just like you would kind of expect a junior officer to be over there. We've got Jeremy Piven from Entourage as one of the Blackhawk pilots. Did you notice that, or did you have to notice that in the cast list? I had to notice in the cast list. Uh, like, yeah, oh, wait, I mean, he's what? got a wait, he's got a big on. helmet on for most of the movie. What? <laughs> And I don't think he had a name tag on his helmet. That's what really frustrated me. He died pretty quick too. But um, yeah, Jeremy Piven in this. Um, I don't know how to say his name, but uh, Nicola Coaster Waldo. Waldo. I don't know. I'll just go with that. Basically, Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones is in this movie as well. <laughs> um, good old Orlando Bloom, Legolas himself, without the hair, <laughs> starts it off. It's all his fault. Honestly, like, you know, yeah. it's interesting about that scene where Blackburn misses the rope because that's one of the inaccuracies in the film. It's widely believed that Blackburn just misses the rope and it's due to, uh, you know, his own personal mistake, not due to an RPG shot that alters, you know, him trying to grab the rope, which is what happens in the movie. Uh, but that's really what that's what sets this whole thing off bad i mean well we could we could probably suspect that maybe this wasn't a great plan to begin with but in the context of it actually being in action him falling down and immediately causing them having to go into a a medevac type situation seriously changed the way that this operation went but orlando bloom 
young Orlando Bloom. Hot shot comes in and then, yeah, falls. Uh, and then we, we talked about Tom Hardy, feature film debut, and then Ty Burrell, Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. Totally unexpected, right? Yeah. It's crazy. This cast list is amazing. It is so much fun to watch this movie and just kind of pick them out and be like, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, you know, it, it wouldn't be like that watching this in 2001 because these guys are unknowns at that point. This is a bunch of actors that we don't know who they are yet. They haven't had their big breakouts, uh, but very, very cool. So, all right, setting the stage. Now we're going to get into this. I don't know in detail enough to talk about it. <laughs> the vast history that led up to the events of the battle of Mogadishu. So what I want to do is talk about what we actually see in the film mm-hmm. because Ridley Scott chooses to set the stage for us. And I'm actually going to read through some of this because it tells us what the political climate is. It tells us why we were there and it tries to tell us what it is that we are trying to accomplish by being in Somalia at this time. All of this is backdropped by this incredibly gladiator-esque soundtrack behind it. Uh, And it's got, it's very muted dark colors and it's showing us some of the, brutality of the Somalis at the time. So you've got burned corpses and just the starvation. It's, it's really trying to nail nail home what the situation is right now. So we have, it goes like this says East Africa, 1992 years of warfare among rival clans causes famine on a biblical scale. 300,000 civilians die of starvation. Muhammad Farah Adid, the most powerful of warlords rules the capital of Mogadishu. He seizes international food shipments at the ports. Hunger is his weapon. The world responds. Behind a force of 20,000 U.S. Marines, food is delivered and order is restored. April 1993. Adid waits until the Marines withdraw and then declares war on the remaining U.S. peacekeepers. In June, Adid's militia ambush and slaughter 24 Pakistani soldiers and then begin targeting American personnel. In late August, America's elite soldiers, Delta Force, Army Rangers, and the 160th SOAR, that's the Special Operations Aviation Regiment, the Blackhawks, are sent to Mogadishu to remove Adid and restore order. The mission was to take three weeks, but six weeks later, Washington was growing impatient. Boom. Fast forward. Here we are. We're at the base. So I got to ask you, man. Do you like the way that this film chose to set the stage with the background being kind of in text so much? Uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a very deliberate choice not to tell and dig into the politics of the story. Did that work for you? It did. And it was weird at first because I'm normally used to, again, if I'm, if I'm talking about Military movies, war, I'm not going to call them war movies necessarily. My, the military movie to, to my experience growing up was the Top Guns and the Iron Eagles. You know, the ones that had a lot of, they were heavy on action and light on drama. And so I'm used to one to two to three lines on the screen and then title card or action. So when Ridley Scott uses a heavy amount of textual narrative, 
as opposed to actual footage of, let's say, Clinton signing an order or other well-known footage or these other elements, it was weird at first. Not weird to throw me out of the movie experience. It actually kind of drew me in because it's as, it's as if Ridley Scott was saying, look, I'm not just setting you up. I'm giving you information. I need you to understand what's going on here. Uh, you and I talked offline about um, a, a performance I saw this weekend and how it gave context to the, a story that we're both familiar with and how that gave, gave weight to it. I think if Ridley Scott had given us a pictorial, you know, a few, a few words here and there, hearing Clinton say something or whatnot, I don't know that it would be nearly as effective because we're being forced to read words. We're being forced to kind of absorb everything that's literally being given to us on screen as opposed to interpreting imagery. And when you have this, even the way that he created beats in between each set of lines, showing us dead bodies, showing us malnourished people, showing us all this different stuff against that really kind of drab color palette that you mentioned, it, it, it drew us in it draw it drew me in as a, as an audience to say, okay, we're in, we're in business. It sets the tone. I mean, it quite literally sets the tone because it says, this is a story that needs to be told and I want you to experience it, but I need you to know that it's true. This is what happened. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I, I really loved it as well. I thought it was fantastic and I, I hadn't, I don't know that I'd paid much attention to it before my most recent viewing, but in this one, it it was really just forefront in my mind um, as I saw it go through. And it's got that, like I said, with that, that soundtrack in the background is reminiscent of that final track in Gladiator. Um, it's got this almost operatic nature to it. And the soundtrack in general is one of the most under under I would almost say underscored uh underrated things about this film it is really fantastic it bounces between different styles of music um it's by Hans Zimmer so I don't know why we should be surprised but it's not very Hans Zimmer like and he even says that it was experimental in nature um it was written by himself and several other musicians Martin Tillman Craig Eastman uh, Hator Pereira and Mel Wesson. They actually got together in a place and they called it the war room, which is, you know, appropriate, I would say for writing this score. And it, this whole thing came about just based on these jamming sessions that later they edited to match up with the different scenes. Um, it only took a few weeks and Zimmer was actually afraid because he thought, well, this is not going to be very listenable on like a CD. No one's going to want to just listen straight through this. Well, I think he was wrong because I think it's amazing. And as we transition from that opening scene that I think works so well to establish the tone and really gets us in that, like I said, that dep it depresses you right off the bat. You're like, oh my goodness, this is serious. And then it's like we hit with this kind of rock anthem type sound that is um, exciting and energetic as we get to see the base, right? And we start to go into that zone and meet the characters. And we get to see Eric Bana like playing a spy, essentially doing some recon out in the marketplace, which by the way, I don't know that he could have pulled that off. Very well, <laughs> it's Eric Bana. He can do whatever he wants, man. 
Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I just really enjoyed the music specifically in this opening sequence. I thought that the, the transitioning between the two different tracks and the way that the film opened is super, super great. Yeah. We talked a lot about in the past, how soundtracks tend to either elevate a scene or become supporting actors in the scene. And I think this did the latter in that it, it created an amplified tone for those two particular things that were going on and allowed us to experience a little bit of both cinematic and at the same time, personability with these characters. Because the thing is this whole movie is centered around characters. I think the conflict itself is a backdrop, but it's a character centric movie. It's about people at, at the heart of it. It's not about the battle necessarily. The battle becomes a backdrop, which reminds me a lot of Dunkirk because Dunkirk could have been about the thing about the 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 whole rescue and event and everything spoiler whatever you know but it became about the people and about why they were there and what they were trying to do to survive and i think that's why i enjoyed a lot of this movie was because it gave personability to these to these guys it wasn't because i knew they were real people I mean, that's the, that's the really magical part about this is it wasn't the fact that I knew this really happened that gave it weight. It was the fact that these, I got to experience what these guys were experiencing and how they were trying to maintain a sense of normalcy. And we see that early on in the film. How I love the moment when Banna, his character goes, who's hungry? And, and we don't see what really happens, but then we see the next scene, they're roasting this ox or whatever this this wild uh, game over an open fire and we we get this we get this moment of saying okay here's what these guys are trying to do they're trying to create a life here because this is the life that they've chosen to have i mean not specifically in mogadishu but by signing up to do this right this is that's home right yeah. it's it's called a a fob or a forward operating base kind of at the at the moment and that's what they're at and it's that's where they live. That's where they come back home to is that airfield, which is a terrible place, by the way. Again, I don't, some of the, some of the decision making from a UN peacekeeping force and an American JSOC, uh, perspective is, is odd to me of what they did and where they were located and such. But those, the, the opening stuff here does a even better, just continues to keep up with that great tone setting. I think we get, all these little snippets of personality and kind of telling us what's going on and how these, how these men must be feeling. There's, there's a quick shot where we see the food supply be brought in and the civilians are going to get food and we see the Somalis start shooting them up. And the, the guys in the helicopter are like, Hey, can we engage? Like we need to, we need to engage and they aren't allowed to. And you can just read it all over their face, right? That they're they're sitting there with the opportunity to stop this murder from occurring, and they have to just sit there and watch it happen. And you you immediately realize how much that's weighing on them. And then we get to see these great scenes between the Blackhawk helicopters, Super Six One and Super Six Four are their call signs, and Walcott. Uh, that's Piven is joking about 
his his bird being Mogadishu Airlines. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. I love that. I love that moment. I, I know it's so good, but it's like again, it's like they're bringing levity. It's it's almost like their coping mechanisms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been on deployments. I haven't been uh, to Mogadishu to fight the Somalis, but I've been out in you know out in the ocean for six seven months, mm-hmm. and you have to do things like this. You have to almost make fun of yourself sometimes to keep it lighthearted or else you'll go crazy. You really, right. really will. Um, yeah. And for these guys, it's even worse because their lives are on the line every time they're in the air. Yeah. Every time they're, every time they're moving. There's a, a friend of mine that I played softball with this summer. And I just found out recently that he served in the Navy and he was, uh, he was stationed at, um, at uh, Guantanamo Bay at Gitmo for a little while. And I was like, dude, what was that like? And he said, well, where I was, it was great. And which tells you a lot about Gitmo, how it can be a tale of two cities when it comes to being where you were stationed. He was a medic. And so he didn't interact a lot with a lot of the craziness that was going on because I mean, it's a prison, you know, it's, it's a place where you're, um, you're, you're, you're just there doing your thing. And so he said, for me, it, there were there were more goods than bads, you know, when it came to that. But still, you think about what the little that I know about Guantanamo Bay. I mean, again, all I know is from stories from people and a few good men. You know, that's about the limit of what I know. But they I know, have really good Cubans. I've been there. Okay, then there you go. So sandwiches, so, not the people. Sorry, that, that <laughs> could have been misconstrued. I mean, they probably have some good Cubans. They also have some bad ones. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think that name tag has gone to your head, literally. Uh, Anyway. We said we weren't going to laugh. What's going on here? Anyway. uh, But but you're right. When you're in a place, that place has to become your home. And I'm not going to call the military a prison life, but when when I would visit – guys in uh, the local penitentiary here, when I, when I would talk to them, the, the guys that seemed the most like stable, the most kind of at home were the ones that were lifers because they knew that they weren't going to go anywhere. So it wasn't that they were making the best of what they had. They were making that their home. And so I got to thinking the three week, it was supposed to only take three weeks and now they're in week six. So you got to believe that a lot of these guys are just like, we're in it for the long haul. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll be here as long as it takes. I don't know if they, they were thinking about home or if this, at this point they were just going, yeah, this is what it's going to be. And we're going to, we're going to make the best of it. This is going to be our home. Well, there's, there's also a lot of frustration that goes into this because mm-hmm. these guys are, they want to act, right? These are operators. These are the, these are the guys that go in and get stuff done. They are not the ones that just sit around and wait. Um, they, they are there to, to take action. And when you're in this situation and you're just waiting for that phone call, man, it is awful. I mean, I, I have been somewhat in that situation before where, you know, I've been in a unit that is just, it's, you're, you, you want to go do something to do your part. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example right after nine 11. Um, I was in a small boat unit in Bahrain in the middle East. So, we assumed immediately that we would be a target because we were, you know, just off the coast of Saudi Arabia. So right there around the corner could drive to it. And we wanted to arm up and go get somebody, you know, like we wanted to go, but we, we had to wait. We had to 
pause and you got to wait for the decision makers in Washington and in this case in the UN and all of these people that have to actually go and tell you when you can do things. And you're just sitting there, you know, every day eating, you know, (laughs) roasting an ox or um, playing ping pong. You know, there's some scenes in this one where they're taking target practice, just keeping their skills up, things like that. And it can get real monotonous just doing that training every single day, waiting, waiting, waiting for that day where you get the call. Um, and so when they get when they get it, they're ready. Um, they're ready to go. The The other big scene I really, really love um, is with the, as far as character development goes is Pilla when he is making fun of Captain Steel. <laughs> it's so it's good. So good. And it's, it's awesome because it comes right after Captain Steel has gone up to I guess it's Hoot. Yeah, Anna's character, mm-hmm. and he said, and he says, you know, uh, your safety's off, and he, he gives him this this lecture about his safety being off, and Hoot gives him the the very common, and that is an actual thing. Like I've seen that actually happen in in uh, my life, where someone has been told that, and they point to their head and say, you know, here's my here's my safety, or basically saying like my fingers <laughs> and my head, like I'm. I'm my, my I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to shoot the stupid gun, dummy. <laughs> but that is what an officer of his kind would have said. Now, in reality, the Delta guy probably wouldn't have ever walked around with safety off, to be honest. That's <laughs> very unlikely. These guys are not cowboys. They are not the kind of type of guys that you sometimes see like Navy SEALs portrayed as in the movies that are just wild and there's another scene where their guys are just like shedding their night vision goggles and their, their body armor because they want, they want to go out there without having as much weight on them. A lot of that stuff would not have happened. Mm-hmm. It just, it just would not have, you would have gone through pre-checks before you went out on your, you know, on your uh, op and no one would have let you do that. So a little bit of that's kind of embellished, I think for dramatic effect, but yeah. But steel comes, steel comes up to who, right? He gives him that speech. And then right after that, we get to see Pilla sitting there making fun of him. And what I love about this scene is that steel takes him by the head and kind of, it's almost like he's going to give him a noogie, you know, he turns him away and walks him away and then he reprimands him quietly, but he does it alone. Mm -hmm. That is leadership. That is good leadership right there because everybody knows Pilla is getting reprimanded, but he does it in private. Mm-hmm. So that it's in a way it doesn't nearly embarrass him as much, but at the same time he gets his point across and he's like, "You need to respect the chain of command. Don't do that again." So <laughs> I thought that was just an awesome way to show the development there. And later, when Pilla is unfortunately the first casualty, the movie cuts to Steele's face when he hears about it on the radio. Mm-hmm. And man, okay, now you see, now here, here we're going to get into it because I'm going to start getting choked up every time I talk about this certain stuff. But like the, the look on his face, it, it's just, you can see it in his eyes, right? You can see the loss and sadness in any, they only are, they can only take a couple seconds. All of this happens in a flash because they can't sit there and mourn. They're, they got a firefight to deal with. They got tens, dozens of other soldiers to take care of and make sure they're in the right mindset, doing the right things. But we cut to his face and we get that two, three seconds of mourning. And it's just, it's expressed so well, so accurately. And we wouldn't have felt that. I don't think without the scene of Pilla making fun of him mm-hmm. there. When I, when I look at this movie as a whole, there is a sense of 
what I thought was going to be an interesting dichotomy of I was trying to guess at what themes were going to come out before the movie was over. And I was glad that I was surprised that they weren't. And one of the themes that I picked up on was early on Tom, uh, Sam Shepard's character, William Finch, uh, excuse me, uh, Sam Shepard. He's talking to, I guess it's one of the chief guys for, um, for the, for the, for the sitting president is the self-proclaimed president. And the guy says, look, this is a civil war. This is our war. Essentially saying, you have no right to be here. And Shepard's character goes, 300,000 people killed is not a civil war. That's genocide. Yes. And I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, so you've got these Mogadishians fighting each other. You know, you've got the, the civilians and you've got the military and there's this infighting. And then a couple of scenes later, you get those comments um, by Captain uh, Captain St- Steele with 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 Hoot about uh, Rangers and um, and uh, and is it, is it Rangers and who's the other what's the other group I can't remember Delta Force Delta Delta Force and what I thought was going to happen was we were going to get this nice dichotomy of like this infighting between these two major groups of people and with a third being the Blackhawk you know folk people but. It didn't turn out that way, but what it did was it showed differences. It showed a different way of doing things, how you had Rangers and Deltas, how they, they saw things, how they, they, they approached their training differently. They did these, they had different ways of, of looking at this world that they were living in. But within that, you had this sense of brotherhood. You had this sense of, we're not leaving a man behind. And that was preached over and over again in this movie. Um, I don't, I don't know because there were so many characters. If it was just Delta's talking to Deltas or Rangers talking to Rangers, or if it was this whole group of American soldiers that were talking about each other, because you know Shepard's character was like, "We're not doing that. We're not leaving anybody behind." And I, I wondered. It, it made me think: Was there this kind of conflict between these two groups of people? I mean, were they different? They were, were they so different because of their military training that there was this, was there any kind of, I don't know. There, there were hints of that early on. It felt like I'm a ranger, you're a Delta. We do things differently. We don't actually see eye to eye on everything. You know, I don't know. It just, I looked at that and I thought, Hmm, is that something that really Scott's trying to do here? Is he trying to show that there is a different way that these two groups are approaching this conflict differently because of their jobs. I don't know. I mean, it just, it was something that stuck out to me and I don't know if it stuck out to you. No, not really. I, I didn't, I didn't pick up on any kind of competition between the two. I mean, they, they're different for very good reason because they, in the movie, because they are different. Um, we actually, actually reached out to my buddy, Josh, uh, from the LSG podcast. I was telling you about LSG media podcast. And I asked him, like, what what would your definition be of the difference between Delta and Rangers? And he said, I'd call Rangers an elite infantry unit, but they also do conduct special ops. Their schools are very challenging, but they don't require a set rank or years of experience. So Delta is a tier one national asset special operations group, and it recruits from other spec ops units like the Rangers, the Green Berets, the SEALs, MARSOC, and those all require 
multiple years of experience. So the average Delta guy is around 32 to 33 years old. And the average Ranger is like 22 to 23 years old. So you can be a Ranger straight off the bat. You come out of school, you know, high skill level, boom, you're in the Rangers. So you're learning on the job. Delta are the proven guys that have been there, done that, and excelled at it. So there is a probably underlying, not necessarily jealousy, but like a little bit of envy there from the Rangers, okay. right? They're, they're, that's going to be there. This is the military. So, I mean, you're always going to feel that way because yeah. these Ranger guys, you know, like they want to be Delta guys, really, all of them probably. And so you have some of that. And that, that's also what makes it so great when it's time to go. It's time to go. And you see multiple times in this movie where you don't know the difference between Delta and Rangers because they're just, they're going like, I'm coming with you. Right. And that's, that's what I think is the strength of this. And while I know Ridley Scott reading up on some research, he put the names of these guys on their helmets because they all quite literally look the same. You wouldn't have been able to tell unless they were on the screen for a long period of time. And I think that was intentional. I think that he did what I think I wanted him to do was create ambiguity. So it didn't become something like, Oh, a Ranger did that. Oh, a Delta guy did that. No, it was guys fighting guys getting into this and, and reacting to the same things that were going on. Because once you get into that zone or even once you're, you know, you, once you're stationed somewhere or I'll, I'll stick to my first thought, once you're in the zone fighting, you're all one group at that point. You're doing different jobs, but you're all one group doing the job that you're being asked to do for the whole group at that point. Yeah. You have one singular goal. That you're that's right. Yeah, that's what I mean. yeah. Yeah. So speaking of different groups doing different things, I want to talk real quick before we hit into themes about, I want to set the stage again of what this op is, what this movie, because the first, I don't know, third or whatever is all, it's probably not even a third. It's probably more like a quarter is just getting to know those characters learning about what's going on and getting us ready for the actual battle of Mogadishu. So Beals seizes up, which clears the way for Sergeant Eversman played by Hartnett to lead the Ranger force. First thing I want to remind or tell everybody is for those that don't know, an army Sergeant is an E five. Okay. In 1993, an enlisted man E five earned depending on years of service, Somewhere between about $13,000 and $22,000 a year. Now, I want, I want that to sink in because of the level of responsibility that Sergeant Eversman has. He is leading in dozens of rangers into this battle zone to capture this tier one bad guy or two tier one bad guys, right? And he is making like $13,000, $14,000. Now, I'm not trying to make this a political podcast message about how the military is underpaid there's other payments that you get for for things that are smaller but in essence that's what's occurring here this man is putting his life on the line and that's what he that's what he gets in return as far as financial compensation to live his life so just something to keep in mind i just thought that that was an interesting perspective when i when i looked that up i was i was actually blown away i I looked it up now and then I was like, oh, you know, I should probably look up and see what it actually was in 1993. And I, oh man, it's just, it's just unreal. And what I'm getting at is as an, as a young junior enlisted guy, these men had so much responsibility, right? And they had to earn the right to do that through testing and 
going to boards and being evaluated, but still it's a lot of responsibility for like a 23, 24 year old. So that happens. And now he's in charge of the Rangers or part of the Rangers. Captain Steele is actually the one in charge of all the Rangers. So the battle of Mogadishu is actually part of that bigger operation was called operation Gothic serpent, which I don't like because I don't like snakes. Um, and again, it was this mission and the mission. So the mission that is set forth by uh, general Garrison or is it Commander Garrison or General Garrison? He's a general. I think he's a general too, yeah. It had three distinct elements. And he outlines this in the movie. I think they did a great job of it. Adid is having a senior cabinet meeting. And two of the tier one targets are present. I forget what their exact jobs are. I think one of them might be a financier and one of them something else. The goal is for Delta to infiltrate and seize the suspects. While four ranger groups will rope in off the Blackhawks and create a perimeter with four corners. Lieutenant Colonel McKnight, Tom Sizemore, he leads the Humvee column. He's going to drive in, load the prisoners and evac as a ground force, the three miles back to the base. The total mission time is expected to be 30 to 60 minutes. That sounds like it should work (laughs) on paper. (laughs) They were denied light armor and gunships. And part of this is again the waiting and and what what has taken place here in reality is they're so under the radar with this op, it's not known about by a lot of people. And so by the time they've decided to spin it up and go, they don't have time to get these assets that are in the area from other units. Gotcha. So they aren't able to get this stuff. So instead they're gonna use the Blackhawks and the Little Birds, which are awesome, by the way. The <laughs> little birds. For air cover, and they're going to have the miniguns on the little birds and the rockets on the Blackhawks. So that's what the mission is supposed to be. Simple, go in, grab them and get them, cover while they're doing it, and then roll on out. So one of the things that I found very, very interesting about researching researching this is that Mike Durant, who is the pilot who's ultimately eventually captured, uh, one of the Blackhawks pilots, (laughs) he was talking about how they hated the fact that they had to go in from the base. And we even see this in the film when they take off, there's a kid up on the mountain, like just watching the base. So he immediately radios in to the Somalis in Mogadishu. He said, Mike Durant said that what they really preferred is they wanted to go off of a carrier because when you launch yourself off of a carrier, By the time you reach the coastline and you're on top of the city, there's no warning time. They have maybe 30 seconds to a minute to react. But in this scenario, they might have as much as 15 minutes to prepare. And that is a lifetime Mm -hmm. when you're talking about this this fighting force in Mogadishu that's been doing this for a long time. They're seasoned. They're not just some rebels with pitchforks, right? They have RPGs. They know what they're doing. Right. And you're already going into a zone where your Blackhawks can't maneuver. They're sitting ducks in the air. Uh, This is not the type of place you want to be using them. And so there's these elements around this that, you know, even though on paper it sounds like it should work, kind of tell you maybe it's not going to. The other one thing I wanted to mention, we talked about Delta versus Rangers and kind of what the difference is there. Delta in general is not something I'm super familiar with, and I don't think a lot of people are. Uh, There's very few movies that feature. Delta guys. There's a lot of movies that feature seals. And so I wanted to briefly go over the differences. 
Delta and SEALs are similar, but SEAL Team 6, which is called also called DevGrew, uh, development group, they are kind of the equivalent to what Delta is. They're both special mission units, and they're both under control of the very secretive JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command. Um, they perform clandestine and highly classified missions around the world, and each unit can perform various types of operations, but both of them primarily work on counterterrorism. So a couple, couple differences, selection process. We talked about this earlier. Delta is a conglomerate of everybody, right? They take all kinds. It's mostly army, but they also can have SEALs on the Delta force. Um, SEAL Team 6 is all from the SEAL Team community. It's, it's the most elite of the Navy SEALs that you can get. Training is mostly the same, so they do they do almost all the same stuff. They're pretty interchangeable with the exception of maritime ops, which, as you would expect, the Navy is much better at. Um, Culture-wise, Delta has a lot of different specialties, and they, they train together to get up to speed. So you could have, you know, snipers from the Black Hawk pilots and Navy SEALs and Air Force para-jumpers all in the same unit. So they've kind of got to come together to get up to a certain level for whatever op they're going to be going to do. Uh, whereas the Navy SEALs are just managing an advanced level of training based on what they already know. And with that, I think that sets us up for the latter half for, you know, two thirds of the movie, which is they're in there and mm -hmm. things start going wrong. So what would you say was your main takeaway thematically, emotionally from the fight, from the Battle of Mogadishu. Once we're in the stuff and and every bullets are flying, what do you get out of this story? Well, there's a sense of individuality uh, versus versus group. Um, I, I started thinking about the facts of the of the of the event. How 19 soldiers were lost, and two Blackhawks went down, and you throw that number up against 300,000 people being killed within the, the Mogadishians. And these numbers are just rattling around in my head and I'm going, man, what is going, I mean, what's the point? I mean, if you lose one, does it make the, does it make the, the whole thing a failure because you've lost one of your own? Um, should we have been in there to begin with? And there was a lot, you know, talking to my dad, there was a lot around this of, uh, around this event saying, should we even be in there? Because it's not our war. You know, are we, are we doing the right thing? And that's always been the case when I, th I think when the U S decides to play a part in events of other countries that don't directly affect us, there's always that, that idea that, you know, we don't need to be there. It's not our fight, but there's, I don't know. I felt this real sense of dichotomy, this real sense of, I don't know, not conflict, but where you had these soldiers who were fighting to get out. They weren't, I mean, the, you mentioned earlier, the moment that, that, that the medics started becoming the, basically the, <laughs> the the main people at this point they were like oh gosh it became a and became basically a um a rescue op 
at that point, things just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, what's the point now? Just get out, get out, find, find your convoy and get out. And if there's a word that comes to mind, it's chaos. And there's, but there's still strategy within chaos because none of these guys, even though I think their mission changed in that moment, their sense of duty did not. And so I, I, I kind of, I can't say I related to them cause I'm not, I've never been military, but I began to understand the sense of, we're not just trying to survive. We're trying to survive within this world of, of chaos that we're living in for these next hours or over, you know, over the course of a over 24 hour period or less than 24 hour period. And so I look at these characters and I see these, what I loved about this, these little pockets of stories that were taking place throughout Mm -hmm. the back two thirds of the film. You know, he had these two guys that were like, I think the convoy left us. No, no. I think we're supposed to go with the convoy. I think we're supposed to meet up with them. Well, I thought they were supposed to come back to us. You have these two individuals and you have another pocket of people from the, from the, 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 the Blackhawk that went down and you have this, just, there's so much going on here and you have these individual stories that are taking place and it's not about the mission anymore. It's about each other. And I think that that really got amplified. It didn't take the mission to make me see that it took the individual characters themselves in trying to survive and trying to accomplish these side missions that had to come up of rescuing those guys from the chopper and getting people to the convoy. And at the same time, still trying to make sure that these prisoners were remain captured. So there's this like, here's your mission. Oh, and here's these other 12 things that happened as a result of this one event that took place. For me, I, I, I don't know if I could have survived that. I think I would have probably just gone into fetal position and just have just covered myself because that's a lot, man. I mean, in all seriousness, that's a lot to take in. Well, some guys try to, uh, and you know, you know, perspective is that Captain Steele actually addresses this occasionally during his time. You know, he's has to tell guys, listen, snap out of it, do this, do that, do this one thing, right? Do this, do this job that you were meant to do and you know you can do. And it and it gets them back in the right mindset because there is a fear that kicks in. That's one of the the main themes of this movie is fear. There's a lot of it. And and they have to face it. There's um a couple different occasions where the Blackhawks get out. Or no, I'm sorry, not the Blackhawks. The Humvees get out of the city. And the situation comes up and it's like, hey, you got to go back. And you get some guys who say, "I'm wait, no, I I don't want to go back. Um, Thomas actually specifically says that when uh, I think he's talking to, I can't remember who he's talking to, if it's, if it's Hoot or, or one of the other uh, Delta guys. But he's like, I can't go back in there. Mm-hmm. And he says, it's crazy. Is there anyone still alive? And somebody says to him, Thomas, everyone feels the same way you do. All right. It's what you do right now that makes a difference. It's your call. Hua. And he he eventually goes running after the Humvees and says, wait, no, take me, take me with you. There's other instances where despite their fear of Eversman is one of the guys as well. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going back. Right. Like they're same thing with McKnight. Oh my goodness. This is where Tom Sizemore is so phenomenal. He's got like blood and dirt on his face 
after getting the Humvees out the first time. And he, they, they tell him he's got to go back out and he, he's smoking a cigarette. He just takes this deep drag of a cigarette and then you can just read it on his face. And he's like, all right, let's go. You know, it's just like, that's what you have to do. And it's not that they're not afraid. They're terrified, (laughs) but they have to do that. They have, Mm -hmm. they have this, um, unnatural courage about them. Um, and that's, that I think that's what makes heroes Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that level of courage because, and it's, it's all about what binds them together. And it's like, what are you fighting for? Right. There's a scene in the movie and actually I'll read, I'll read something from Ebert that I think sums it up really well. Um, Roger Ebert, his review, he said, films like this are more useful than gung ho military movies. And I would add to that or comic book movies, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. They help audiences understand and sympathize with the actual experiences of combat troops instead of trivializing them into entertainment. Although the American mission in Somalia was humanitarian, the movie avoids speech making and sloganeering. At one point, discussing why the soldiers risk their lives in situations like this, Poot says at the end, it's about the men next to you. That's mm-hmm. all it is. See, this is why I like Ebert, because he's like, we're like buddies. That's exactly what I was thinking. And I like that the film doesn't make any apologies for that, that we see people that are afraid. We see guys that are like, I can't go back in there. And we see guys that are like, yes, let's absolutely go back in there. It doesn't differentiate. These are all people doing the same things. And it shows the honesty of their emotions, honesty of their experience. And it allows us to say, oh gosh, this is what humanity is like. This is what human beings choosing to do something superhuman is like. And I think that we do miss that when we get to the the over-the-top war film that says that we have the the great, you know, win one for the Gipper type speeches to inspire us. I love that he says it allows us to experience what they did because we relate to that. We have that me too mentality, maybe not within this particular situation or a particular battle like this, but it allows us to feel like, man, I can be okay saying I'm afraid, but I'm choosing to ignore that and just keep going, just get through it. And that's so powerful. Yeah, it's, and I mean, they, they try to think about it, right? So there's multiple scenes where people question what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Eversman, there's a, there's a scene where Hoot and Eversman are together and who has to tell him Hoot's great about this. He's, he's like the, the, the voice of reason in this film so many mm-hmm. different times. He says, you can't affect the outcome. It's just war. And then he tells him there will be plenty of time to think about it later. Trust me. And that's sad. Like it's, it's so sad because you know, like that's, that's what PTSD is. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to think about it later. But he's saying, you're in the moment right now. Mm-hmm. And what Eversman was concerned because he felt like it was his fault that uh, Blackburn fell off the rope. And who's telling him, no, look, man, stuff happens. All you can do is react to it and, and make the next decision <laughs> and keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you, that's survival mode. And it makes me think about, you know, if my life was on the line all this time and I knew I could die at any moment, what would it like, what gives my life meaning? You know, is it, is it the fact that I have a podcast that I would no longer be able to do? Uh, you know, is it my family? Is it my friends? 
I think that in in this scenario, a lot of the soldiers really questioned what they did because two weeks later we pulled out, you know, and, and it, we just left and it wasn't over. It wasn't done. Mm-hmm. I mean, how must they have felt to think to themselves like, oh, well, yeah, we just lost 18 or 19 of our of our brothers. And now we leave these people. It was for nothing, essentially. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Gosh, I mean, it just kills me. I can't imagine that feeling. Well, and some of it, if we, if we think about, again, I'm, I've only read snippets of what, uh, what it took place. So the main point of the mission was to seize these two individuals, Madid's um, cabinet or whatever, right? Right. That was this mission specifically. The, the, the overall goal is to get Adid out of power. Right. Right. And eventually they did. Like eventually I think he was, he was killed off or I don't know if we, did we do that? I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. It was a, it was a while later. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the end goal or the end result was successful. We did get those two guys um, as a result of this effort. The problem was, and this, this is me playing devil's advocate. This is in no way me saying, uh, this is what you signed up for military people. Cause no, this is, that's not what I'm saying. But if I'm looking at this objectively, if I'm looking at this from a quote facts point of view, I'm going, you guys accomplished what you accomplished. And part of war is losing lives. <laughs> that's the unsympathetic part of me that's saying that. And you know, me more, you know, as well as anybody else, that that's not how I'm thinking. Right. That if you, you know, you make the choice and yes, those are the consequences. The problem is this turned into a rescue op. This, the whole nature of the game changed 30 minutes to an hour turned into 18 hours. That didn't go as planned. And so if I'm a, if I'm a soldier at the very beginning of this, I'm like, Oh crap, this isn't going to pan out the way you know, it was supposed to. Um, I love, I guess there's a moment when Orlando Bloom's character is, is getting all of his gear. He's getting like his overnight stuff. And they're like, you're not going to need that. You're not going to need that. It's going to be over. There's a sense of arrogance that takes place that, you know, I mean, it's completely foreshadowing the fact that even if you didn't know what the event was historically, yeah. Oh, you're going to need those night vision goggles. Yeah. You know, yeah, whatever. And I think that, uh, you know, cinematically, I think that was kind of great setup for what was eventually going to take place. But I think the fact that this became one thing, it became something else. It started out as one thing and became something else puts a lot more weight onto that. That question was the dying was, did it have meaning after all? Well, from a rescue op, absolutely not because a rescue op means nobody dies. Nobody gets left behind. Nobody gets, you know, nobody loses a life. Rescue ops aren't supposed to, you're not supposed to have that in a rescue op, but that's not what this was. This was a mission to go seize stuff, seize people. And, and I think that's kind of where this conflict, this internal conflict, maybe it lives is the fact that when it went from one thing to another, all of a sudden the stakes changed that it makes me wonder, I'm, I'm speculating. What if the op didn't turn into a rescue op? What if something else went down? What if there were more military people from the Somali side and 19 people died as a result of just the conflict of this mission itself? Would, I don't know, would, would these guys feel the same way? I, I don't know. You know, would, 
if this was just a regular mission and the same outcome happened where um, a black hawk was shot down, where it was, you know, they, they couldn't get these two guys out. There was an overabundance of military opposition and people did lose their lives. Would it have felt any more justified losing lives? That's, and I'm not asking you to answer it. I'm just, it makes me wonder if the stakes were different, you know, if this, didn't turn into something where we had to rescue our own Would the, you know, America pulling out two weeks later and us, even though we eventually got what we wanted, would there still be that sense of um, maybe a lack of meaning from, from those that died? Like when is that meaningful? I guess is my question. When is it meaningful for a, for a soldier to die? I think, I think for them it's, it's all meaningful. It doesn't matter. Like this is, this is what they lived. This is what they live for is to give their life in the situation where, I mean, like you, you said earlier, they are knowingly in a position that they are going to do what other men tell them to do. Mm-hmm. And they have to just go with that. Yeah. Um, it, it's not, it's not in there. Unfortunately, it's not in there right to get to choose. Right. Um, but I think that they probably care more about the rescue op is if what you're getting at, I would agree. Right. Like, they, you know, they're much more understanding and willing to do that when it's to try and protect a brother than it would be to just get the bad guy mm-hmm. because there's another chance to get the bad guy. Right. right? And there's not another chance to save your brother's life. True. Um, so, and it's interesting because we, you know, we killed a lot by the way. So we, <laughs> we lost nine. The stats are we lost 19. We had 73 wounded. And then of course one, captured Mike Durant um, stats are, you know, numbers are different from different reporting sources, but even like per the UN, there were 300 to 500 Somali killed militia killed and some civilians that were caught in the crossfire and up to 812 wounded. So, I mean, this is massive. I mean, when you want to, when you wonder about like how good the American war fighting force is, that's how good it is. Yeah. We went in with 160 men and there were four to 6,000 militiamen opposing them. Mm-hmm. What? what? You know, so odds wise, when you look at it, 19 doesn't sound that terrible when it's, when you're looking at just numbers and you're not considering human life and you're looking at what they were able to do in, in return. So this is, this is something interesting that came out for me. It's the scene right after Durant is captured, and there's that whole moment where these Somalis are just going to town, lifting up dead bodies, celebrating in the streets. Hey, look what we've captured, right? And there's all this hatred that I feel as a as an as an as a as an audience. And then two scenes later, or one scene later, we see these Americans lining up these Somali prisoners. And you know what I'm thinking? And just torture those guys, just shoot them in the head, whatever. And this is, this is this weird ethnocentrism that I have because you just mentioned it. 19 soldiers lost their lives, and I care deeply about that. Why? It's not because it's, I'm a humanitarian, because I'm an American. It's because yeah. you tell me 300 Somalis lost their lives with that. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, they were firing RPGs at us. They should have. You're like, you good. Sense? Yeah, just, I know. Do you, do you hear that sound? It just sounds so weird to me to think, okay, do I value human life or do I value American life? And I think that Ridley, I don't know if Ridley Scott's trying to do this to me. I think maybe it was unintentional, but the way in which he 
put these scenes together got me thinking, okay, how do I feel about this versus how do I feel about that? And it makes me wonder, what do we, you know, there were, there were a couple of moments. I think, I don't know. There's a, there's a moment where a woman is running away and she picks up a, I guess a, I guess a semi-automatic and one of the soldiers says, don't do it. Don't do it. And the moment that she fired, he just goes, boom yep. and shoots and shoots her dead. And then, and that moment, even I don't, I don't even have sympathy for this Somali woman, you know, anybody that picks up and, and, and shoots a gun at an American, I'm like, go after him. And that kind of scares me. Cause it's like, where, where does my value as a, as a human being stop for other human beings? Does it stop at the border does it stop at the, at the Cineplex? I mean, that's just, I mean, it got me thinking. And it's not always a matter of choice. We want to, we sometimes want to break it down and make it very black and white, you know, bad guys doing bad things, bad, <laughs> good guys trying to stop it. Good. Mm-hmm. But in reality, those that are fighting in this, this militia, the, like, like the text tells us, you know, this is, or like a general's conversation with one of Adid's lieutenants, this is a civil wars have been going on forever. Mm-hmm. They, they're fighting for what they believe is right. And what they believe that they, they, how they believe their society should run. So in their mind, they are following an ideal that is correct and it's their way to get food. You know, they are part of the force that controls the food so that therefore they get to eat. So that's what they're fighting to protect. Cause in their mind, we're coming in to take that away. Uh, and to take away their power and to tell them what to do and be a domineering, you know, country that, that doesn't let them do, you know, it's, it's crazy. And yes, n- I mean, some of them are the murderous kind that torture and play soccer with Americans heads, which is what they did, but not all of them. And so you have to, you kind of, when you start to take that into account, you know, it can really start spinning your head around because you're right. It, why don't we care? as much for their loss of life or even, even if we don't care as much for their loss of life, why aren't we, why aren't we sad that, Mm -hmm. that they are in a position where we had to, where the Americans had to kill them, you know, where it had to get to this point. It's, it is sad. It's sad that, you know, 500 people lost their lives that were Somalis, whether they were trying to kill the 19 or not, you know, it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating. And I think, I think one of the great things about what Ridley Scott gives us in this film is he captures so perfectly that brutality of war. You know, there are hands blown off and that's another interesting scene where the, the guy with the hand where the hand gets picked blown off Mm -hmm. and um, one of the soldiers picks it up and puts it in his bag. Mm -hmm. And it's, I thought that was so gross when I saw it Yeah, come to find out that really happened. And he said he had no idea why he did that, but that it's basically another extension of the camaraderie of the men, because in the, in that carnage, the only thing he could instinctively think is maybe my brother's going to need his hand. Like, you know, like, so he grabs it to take it home just, you know, in case they can put it back. Like it, but it's brutal and it's, it's, it's terrifying and horrifying. There's, there's a person who gets stuck, like literally impaled with an RPG in this movie. It, I mean, that is, oh, oh, that's such a terrible scene. And then 
there's the femoral artery moment, which is one of the hardest scenes to watch of any movie. I think mm-hmm. so rough. Yeah. Um, this, it, uh, good. It, I was just going to say, it just, it just, it feels like the movie is very single minded in its purpose and it wants to really let us know what it feels like to be on the ground as the soldiers under fire in this mission, you know, every step of the way. And, and yeah. they, they, as hard as it is to watch, they get the brutality, right? Right. And there's a, it reminded me a lot of Hacksaw Ridge and the intensity of that. And yeah, great how, how you have, you really do have two distinct styles of how war is portrayed between Ridley Scott and Mel Gibson, but you still get the genuine brutality of it. The in the moment, loud, I can't, I can't comprehend what's going on. Are we going to just keep pushing through type thing? And we don't get that a lot. And I'm not saying we need more of it because I think having it in a certain dose is good for us because it gives us a chance to be reminded, wow, war is like this and there are heads blown off and there are RPGs impaled in people's sides and this stuff does happen. But I don't think we need it to be so prominent that it becomes just gratuitous and like, Hey, we're just going to make our point because you kind of lose your point if you show too much of it. And really Scott, I think he has this great balance of, of showing it and then being quickly done with it. Like he doesn't linger on a ton of these moments. The moments he does linger on, they linger with purpose. They don't linger for the sake of being gratuitous. It's really about saying, look, I want, I want my audience to really, understand the pain and understand the shock and understand the, the overwhelming sense of uncertainty and unpredictability of what's going to happen next. What's happening. I mean, you had, you had uh, conversations happening in the middle of the night that felt just, you know, you didn't, I don't know how to describe it. You had just conversations going on and then all of a sudden shots fired and, and people getting back up and, and getting in a position. It's like, you didn't have these, these moments where <laughs> there were like 10 minutes of talk and inspirational dialogue. And then something happened. I mean, these guys were in the middle right. of a conversation and boom, because that's not what happens. You don't have 10 to 15 minutes to say something inspirational to your fellow uh, soldier. I mean, yeah. it's gonna, it doesn't, it's not over yet. And when you, when you can portray that in a way that, um, I don't know what's happening. That's the best kind of jump scare for me is one that I feel like has, <laughs> has more uh, philosophical purpose than just scaring the living daylights out of me. That's a good way to look at it. It really is. And I think another thing that ties in with that brutality is for me, I personally, again, I appreciate it. I hate to use the word. I don't want to use the word like, cause I don't like it per se, but I mentioned earlier how comic book movies do a different do this a different way and we seem to get we seem to be getting less war movies in my opinion like it doesn't seem like we've had that many of them now and recently you know with the last 12 months we've gotten hacksaw ridge and dunkirk um for sure so we've we've had a, a couple good ones but they don't seem to be as prominently made anymore uh and th- i think part of that is because we have the superhero genre that's that's taking over and in a lot of ways that gives us our good fighting evil content. 
But the difference is it's never really brutal. It's never really honest about what the carnage entails. Humans are are so small in the eyes of these gods or or super super beings, many of them, that it's it's a, it's not a blink when they they disappear or they get killed off. They're just side side characters, right? We don't feel for them in the same way. A, a, a Avengers Age of Ultron is a is an example of this. The weight of what actually happens in that movie and loss. Same thing with New York in in uh, the original Avengers. We don't really feel at all what it would be like for all of these buildings to collapse on all of these innocent civilians. That's not even really addressed. And because we're focused on big guy versus big guy. Um, and I think that there's a serious like sw- swaying of, of American or, you know, movie going opinion based on that, because that's what we see. We don't have to, we're not confronted with this everyday brutality of what it really is like in a battle um, where we, we make jokes about it in Marvel movies and stuff. And I, I'm not saying every Marvel movie needs to be like Black Hawk down um, for sure, but it's, it is different. And it is interesting to me that that is, you know, what we seem to want more of is that lighthearted, not taking it seriously. And maybe that's because it's too hard. Well, and I think it's more akin to the video game world where you can, you can invite yourself into a world that you know is not going to be destroyed in real life. And you can, in a superhero movie, you can watch New York be destroyed knowing that New York isn't really being destroyed right now. And you can watch or portray you, you know, you can, you can play a grand theft auto and you can be these people and kill or, you know, have these moments where you are, um, putting yourself in a, in a role of playing certain people. Like, you know, when I play the last of us, I don't take any solace when I kill a, uh, a clicker, you know, when I'm, when I'm playing this game or when I kill off eventually, uh, David, <laughs> you know, I because one Wait, these are not a kill, David. No, I haven't played it since we've talked, so it's I've taken that was time in off. July. I know <laughs> you were supposed to help me, but we didn't oh, do boy. that. I'm gonna put the blame back on you. In any case, those stories, while in their own right, do give weight to loss. Um, they still do it in a very centric way. It's good guy versus bad guy. You mentioned New York getting blasted and destroyed. Age of Ultron, you know, another uh, great example of what I think civil war tries to do, which is, Hey, there's sacrifice here. There's, there's consequences. I think BVS does it in sort of the more extreme other way that wasn't digestible for an audience. Like, Hey man, all this collateral damage, this is not cool. But I think in some ways Zack Snyder paid that off by saying, look, there is collateral damage. And I'm showing this to you in BVS that man of steel did have consequences or whatever, but we're not talking about those. What I, what I'm saying is I agree with you. And I think that when you get into a fictitious world where gods are fighting other gods, it takes a lot of the weight out of what's actually happening that we don't get at the end of Avengers or the end of man of steel, 20,000 New Yorkers died as a result of the battle between blah, 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 blah. And, 
I would say this. I don't think superhero movies are the place to feel that. I think Hacksaw Ridges, the Black Hawk Downs. I, I don't even want to equate biopics with that, but of course these are two actual biopics. I would say that war films should be the outlet for that. I, I would never want to give a superhero film that kind of weight because I don't think it would ever play out. I think Man of Steel tried to do that and I don't think it necessarily succeeded. And Marvel's films, they don't even try to. They're just like, this is just part of the show. You know, we're really not focused on casualties. We're really focused more on just having fun, you know, having fun and, and doing battle. Right. No, and, and I don't I don't think that they should either. I mean, I I really am respectful of what DC has tried to do because I would love to see more of that mm-hmm. uh, mixed in. I would like to see both, but I just, I just find it interesting that that seems to be what we gravitate toward more. It's easy. It's easily digestible. And it, the, it these is. films are not, these are films that we, I mean, you and I have, we've, we've constantly apologized on the show. Like I can't say I like this because I'm not feeling great about it, but that's the, I mean, that's the conflict. The good conflict that we have is we need to see this. That's because, yes, it's important. Because, yeah, because we can't go to Mogadishu and relive that with these soldiers, and we have to find a way to be able to have empathy for what they went through. And I think films like this help do that for us. Yeah, I do too. Well, we get to the end of the movie, um, and there's this famous thing that comes out of this, right? And it's called the Mogadishu Mile. And in the movie what happens is they end up having to run this, this mile to the Pakistani stadium uh, because there's no more Humvees. Like all, all of the vehicles have gone. And so this group, this group force is forced group force is forced uh, to hoof it on foot. Um, what actually took place is they, they, they actually moved more like tactically like fast paced walking on their way out and they moved about a mile to a rendezvous point where they were extracted. Uh, and then they went or extracted to the stadium. So it's a little bit different. Um, it's a little dramatic, more dramatic in the movie. But I, I really, I think this is a cool thing that has come out of this because the Mogadishu Mile has developed into uh, a thing called uh, the Mogadishu Mile Memorial Run where there's a website and I'm actually going to link it in the, the Facebook notes where they put on these runs every year and it's a 5k. You can do a 5k um, or you can sign up and just do the mile uh, and you can even sign up and participate virtually, but it's meant to be uh, a remem- active remembrance. It happens every year around October 3rd uh, when this event occurred uh, for, for what happened here and what these guys had to go through. There's a lot of guys who actually, military members and vets who do this on their own and they'll actually put on a rucksack uh, with a whole bunch of weight on it and go do the mile to try and symbolically, you know, emulate, emulate. Yeah. Could work. What, what actually took place, what these guys had to do. And I find that really, really cool and really neat. Um, I don't know, like specifically for that community, always remembering that is important for them because they need to keep in mind who went before them and what their sacrifices was. 
And so I think that the Mogadishu Mile is a really neat thing to come out of this. As, as far as remembrance goes, you don't always have stuff like this. Um, and But yet, somebody put this together, and yeah, it's a, it's a really cool deal. That's very cool, man. I had never heard of that, so I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, um, I guess, you know, I wanted to talk, I guess, cinematography. We haven't hit on the cinematography at all, but... This has to be the best helicopter stuff I've seen. I know some people think Apocalypse Now has maybe better helicopter filming scenes, but I don't know. I don't know. For me, I, this has got to be it, man. I, there's some of the scenes where the helicopters are coming in and, and just even the horizon shots, the aerial shots, both the Blackhawks and the Little Birds. It is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, both and, and it's crazy because... I'd never even heard of this cinematographer. His name is Slawamir Idziak. And and I looked up his um, filmography. And I think the only other thing he's done that I even knew about was Harry Potter, Order of the Phoenix, which you know, does not stick out to me <laughs> in any way, shape or form. But it's just so good. And he captures that intensity of the close quarters urban warfare as well as any film I've ever seen. And, and he, he manages to do both that perfectly and the aerial stuff perfectly, which I, it's brilliant. Yeah. I, I like the cinematography a lot. And what I enjoyed most about the film though, was the court. I'm going to call it the choreography, but it's the way in which these, well, look, the, the way in which the filmmaking was done, right? I mean, you had a ton of people running around shooting people getting, I mean, Choreography is the only way I, I could probably describe it. The amount of shooting, the amount of people that are running around, the amount of different formations that some of these soldiers were in, having to go from one place to another. I mean, I just I'm 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 just amazed at how much Ridley Scott was able to capture on a constant basis. I would not want to be the editor of this film for by by any stretch of the imagination because of the number of takes that it would be it would take to to get these guys to say, okay, you go action, start running, and then you have people reacting to bullets and things like that. I, I just I just tried to imagine myself saying, okay, how would I film this portion of this scene in this movie? And you had I mean was a two hour and 24 minute movie and a good hour of it, a good hour and a half of it was the, was the fight. And so to think about all these different elements and pieces that went together to form all the, the, the battle sequences, including the scenes with the, with the helicopters, it, it's a beautifully made film on all fronts because not once did I ever feel like, Oh, that looks fake. Oh, that looks fake. Oh, look at that. That, yeah, that wouldn't really happen. One, because my lack of military knowledge is very much uh, not in question. I have very little, but at the same time, everything felt seamless. Like I didn't feel like anything felt out of place and I felt scared with these guys. And I, I didn't at any given point feel like, um, there were any pacing issues or things like that. So the editing and the, and and the fight choreography, the way in which the battles took, the battle took place and the way in which we got from one place to another was very well done. Yeah. That's, I'm glad that's a great point that you bring up because it is not simple 
to get no, off of that one, one, one guy going one guy going the wrong direction one guy looking in the wrong direction or reacting to a shot too soon and who knows what props are actually being used you know and right. what what's added in after the fact you know they may not it's not like these bullets are really flying so they may be doing some of this acting without the noise of gunfire mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive when you when you have to get that much and again, a lot of that comes back down to that close quarter combat style. It's, it's, it's just super difficult to get it right. And I'm, that's part of why I'm so blown away by how well they did in 2001, you know, and yeah. we haven't really seen anything quite like that since then, at least that I've seen and I've seen a lot. Um, so yeah, it's good stuff, man. <laughs> well, um, my most emotional stuff from this one is, is definitely in my connecting point. So I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that we move to our connecting points. Good suggestion. And I'm going to ask that you go first. Uh, and then I guess we'll roll through them. Okay. I said earlier in the show that this is a movie about characters and it really came about later on in the battle when we see these different pockets of stories playing out, but those stories wouldn't have had the weight that they do without a particular scene. And you hinted at it uh, early on and it starts with Hoot, uh, you know, hinting that he shoots the wild game. And the next scene is um, him going roasting everything. And, and what we get over the course of like the next 10 or 15 minutes are these little pockets of stories. We get, um, we get Pilla making fun of captain steel which is great. We get a couple of guys playing chess together, talking to one another about, I don't know, the upcoming battle and, you know, kind of using chess as a means to say, Hey, I've, you know, I'm going to win this and maybe using it as a double meaning. Uh, we see another pocket of a couple of guys. One guy's drawing this and this is where my names fail me. Cause they don't have their helmets on. Come on guys. <laughs> um, one guy's drawing a, um, a charcoal drawing and the guy behind him was like, Hey, that's coming along really well. Can I make a suggestion? And he goes, what? And he says, you're drawing a children's book. That's going to be pretty scary for a kid to draw. He says, it's about this and it's about that. And he goes, okay, whatever. And there's these just little stories here and there. And we get introduced to the different characters, some of which we will never see again because they get killed instantly or they don't even go out. These are not even necessarily main characters. And what I love about that is we get the humanity of who they are. We get personal with them. We get the fact that these guys enjoy playing chess and watching uh, comedies and drawing. And to see that later, I think, reinforces what you talked about earlier with when when Pilev is killed, that reaction from Steel. It wouldn't have had the impact had we not had that one moment earlier. And I think those pockets of stories that we get, those pockets of introductions, give weight to what happens later on to these individual characters. One could argue that there's too many of them and we don't get a chance to really care about any of them, but I disagree. I would say that we have an opportunity not to care about individuals, but to, about, but to care about the lives of soldiers because they're not just faceless people at that point. They actually have lives. Um, and it's not just about, even though, even though there's scenes where guys are looking at pictures of their family. Um, we've seen that in more movies past. That's an accent piece 
um, to, to this film. It's one piece of many where we get a sense of, of, uh, of humanity. And I'm glad that we get that because we need more war film. I don't want to say we need more war films, but if we have more war films, we need more of that humanity because that's what makes these films powerful is the human touch, not the battle itself, not the action sequences. Those things should be supplementary to the lives of the people that we're focused on, whether it's one individual person or whether it's a, 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 a cornucopia of people like we see in this movie. It's really, it comes down to the humanity uh, of it. And that's, that's really kind of where, where, where I landed. That's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's very genuine too. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, it feels pretty authentic to me. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not a ranger. I'm not a Delta guy. I don't know exactly what it would be like, but compared to many war films that I've seen, it just feels more natural uh, with different personalities and character traits that we're, we're getting a chance to get to know in this one. Um, you know, we got the guy who's <laughs> Ewan McGregor, who just is great at brewing coffee and typing, <laughs> you know, like that's his strength. That's his strength. And, and it's, it, it, it creates this opportunity for an incredible scene later on where it's not just some jokey nod that goes back and be like, Oh yeah, haha, don't forget he makes coffee. It's a, very powerful moving moment because he's trying to cope right in the middle of the crap. Like he's trying to deal. That's how he's trying to deal is to go back to that thing. He knows how to do that. He's mm-hmm. comfortable with that. He loves. Um, so yeah. And I don't, I think without getting all that stuff, you, you would have, you would have a lot less impact for much of this, the, the stuff we see later when they're in the middle of the horrificness. Yeah. Well, uh, for mine, and uh, you know, we can talk back and forth too about this. It's we've we've kind of avoided this so far, and w- w- the biggest thing that comes out of this movie, um, or the biggest remembrance piece, is that two specific army guys lost their lives um, trying to defend Michael Durant, and I just want to talk about them a little bit because everything around what um, Shugart and Gordon accomplished is is pretty incredible and it's the thing that i think is going to be most remembered um out of this so shugart and gordon are two elite delta force snipers and they're flying around um while the the first black hawk is gone or the black hawks have both gone down and they actually ask three times to go down and protect Mike Durant, the pilot of the second Blackhawk. So they see him trying to fight off an oncoming swarm of Somalis. And he's all by himself. And they ask to go down. And there's this incredibly powerful scene where um, they're talking to the general. And they're saying, we need to go. And he's like, are you crazy? Like, do you understand what that means? And they say, yes. And they had, this is real life. They had to ask three times uh, before they got the approval. And they did this knowing full well that they were going down there to save one guy, most likely, and that the odds of them getting out of this were almost nil. I don't, I don't know if they honestly believed they could save him and themselves 
instinctively, they knew they had to try. And so for their efforts, um, they were actually awarded the first posthumous Medal of Honors uh, ever since Vietnam War, which is, which is a pretty big deal. So that was a long, long time period that went by um, that no one had lost their life and been um, honored with the Medal of Honor. And I say awarded. That's the wrong word for that. They weren't awarded. <laughs> um, they received the Medal of Honor. It's actually, it's actually a big, go. it's actually a big deal. And uh, I don't want to put that out there because I learned the hard way not to say awarded. Um, you don't earn, or, or you're not, you're not given the Medal of Honor for, for something you achieved. You didn't win it. You didn't, you didn't win, win it. it. Yeah, they didn't win the the Medal of Honor. So I guess they were awarded it. They earned it. Um, so. I just want to read Master Sergeant Gordon's Medal of Honor citation because I think I think this is very important. And um, Shugart's uh, Sergeant First Class Randall Shugart, his reads very similar. Now, in the citation, it's going to note that Gordon or that Shugart was the first one killed. And in the there's actually some uh, confusion about this because in the movie they portray. Gordon as the first one being killed. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, Shugart comes in in the movie to Mike Durant, who's sitting around the corner. And he says, Gordy's gone, man. I'll be outside. Good luck. And hands him a mm-hmm. pistol. And, oh, like, I don't know. That just, that kills me. Like these two guys, what really happened is they, they took for 15 to 20 minutes, they sat there and reloaded weapons, just like you see in the movie and fought off this horde of incoming Somalis. When all was done, they, the Somalis reported at least 25 dead at the crash site with dozens more wounded and injured. Two guys, two guys. That's what they took out. That's how elite they were. So I'm going to read through the citation real quick. Master Sergeant Jordan, or Master Sergeant, Master Sergeant Gordon, United States Army, distinguished himself by actions above and beyond the call of duty on October 3rd, 1993. While serving as sniper team leader, United States Army Special Ops Command with Task Force Ranger in Mogadishu, Somalia, Master Sergeant Gordon's sniper team provided precision fire from the lead helicopter during an assault and at two helicopter crash sites, while subjected to intense automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenade fire. When Master Sergeant Gordon learned that ground forces were not immediately available to secure the second crash site, he and another sniper, Shugert, unhesitatingly volunteered to be inserted to protect the four critically wounded personnel, despite being well aware of the growing number of enemy personnel closing in on the site. After his third request to be inserted, Master Sergeant Gordon received permission to perform his volunteer mission. When debris and enemy ground fire at the site caused them to abort the first attempt, Master Sergeant Gordon was inserted 100 meters south of the crash site, equipped with only his sniper rifle and a pistol. Master Sergeant Gordon and his fellow sniper, while under intense small arms fire from the enemy, fought their way through a dense maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew members. Master Sergeant Gordon immediately pulled the pilot and the other crew members from the aircraft, establishing a perimeter which placed him and his fellow sniper in the most vulnerable position. Master Sergeant Gordon used his long-range rifle and sidearm to kill an undetermined number of attackers until he depleted his ammunition. Master Sergeant Gordon then went back to the wreckage, recovering some of the crew's weapons and ammunition. Despite the fact that he was critically low on ammunition, he provided some of it to the dazed pilot and then radioed for help. 
Master Sergeant Gordon continued to travel the perimeter, protecting the downed crew. After his team member was fatally wounded and his own rifle ammunition exhausted, he returned to the wreckage, recovering a rifle with the last five rounds of ammunition, and gave it to the pilot with the words, Good luck. Then, armed only with his pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon continued to fight until he was killed. His, a- <clears throat> his actions saved the pilot's life. Master Sergeant Gordon's extraordinary hero- heroism bleh, and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest standards of military service and reflect great credit upon him, his unit, and the United States Army. Now, there is, I don't want to put levels necessarily on sacrifice and heroism, but there's going into a situation that's dangerous to try and protect your buddy. And there's legitimately giving up your life to protect your buddy. And this is the latter. Okay, this is a situation where both of these guys specifically put Michael Durant's life above their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could have used that. He could have used that ammo and tried to take out a couple more and, and worry about himself. But he didn't. He gave it to Durant, hoping Durant could defend himself long enough to make it. Mm-hmm. And so, it's this is just a, an incredible example of what can happen in wartime and what what brotherhood means to these guys. Shugart and Gordon had never met Michael Durant, most likely. They had no idea who this guy was down there or any of the other the other guys who were hurt. They just knew it was their duty and their their you know charge to go down and protect him. And I and I think that's incredibly, incredibly powerful. There's a couple other pieces of this that really tie it together well, I think, in the movie. Um, but specifically, or one specifically, and that is early in the film, we see during the scenes that you're talking about where people are starting to kind of, you're getting to know people mm-hmm. right before the, right before they set out for the battle movie issue, we hear Shugart calling his wife mm. and she comes in late at the end of the movie. <clears throat> um, there's a voiceover and it's actually Shugart and it's, it's believed to be his last letter home to his wife. He says, my love stay strong and you will do well in life. I love you and my children deeply. Oh, um, today and tomorrow, let each day grow and grow. Keep smiling and never give up. Even when things get you down. So in closing, my love tonight, tuck my children in bed warmly, tell them I love them, then hug them for me and give them both a kiss. Good night for daddy. (sighs) Now, Almost done. Okay. I I want to. So that's a letter that Sugart wrote to his wife. I want to wrap this up and share something I found recently, which is, um, again, I don't know if this was a couple years later, but um, Mike Durant was in an event and he met both of the spouses um, of Sugart and Gordon. And after that event, Stephanie Sugart, wrote Mike Durant a letter. So if you, if you have it, if you can't, if you don't know the impact of what any American military member, and this is veterans day, right? That we're doing this for. So that's, that's the point of this that I'm, that I'm getting at. If you don't have a understanding or respect for what these men potentially could be putting on the line at all times, this is why I'm going through this. Um, so Stephanie wrote a letter to Mike and she said, I know that Wednesday evening was as difficult for you as it was for each of us. You will never know how much it meant 
to me to see you face to face and give you a hug. There's so many things I would like to tell you and ask you, but I don't want to cause you more pain or suffering. When I thanked you for giving Randy's death a purpose, I meant it. It is not to detract from the bravery or heroism of the others that died. However, I can look at you and talk to you and see that his efforts were not in vain. Perhaps your wife can explain to you what I'm sure she too experienced during those days. When you are a wife in this situation, the global and political picture pales, and you concentrate only on the one you love and what his immediate isolated situation is. Many people may not understand my feelings, and indeed it is difficult to express them accurately, but I am going to express them to you. I want you to know that because of your bravery and refusal to give up while captured, I can sleep at night. Your refusal to be defeated and give up was as brave an act as Randy's. Had you given up, I would have never known for sure what exactly happened to him. I can live with the fact of knowing he died to save another man, rather than he died from a random bullet shot from a hidden source. If you knew Randy, you would know that he was a very quiet and unselfish man. He always put others first, and therefore it is fitting and appropriate that he died the way he did. Randy truly loved what he did, and had God given him the choice of how to die, I know in my heart he would have chosen to go down just as he did. I also know that had Randy been injured in a helicopter, you would have pilot, piloted a helicopter in to save him, no matter how dangerous the situation was. I don't ever want you to question why you lived and Randy died. You lived to come back and give me some peace of mind to what would have been an otherwise unexplainable situation. You are a living reminder and testament of what the Delta soldiers and those that work with them are all about. The squadron can look to you and know that the beliefs they have and the oath they swear to are valid. Randy and Gordy were not alone when they tried to rescue you. They carried a lot of insight, knowledge, and strength from each mate they had ever worked with inside of them. I want you to enjoy your life and be happy. Look back with pride, not sorrow. Just as Randy fought to save you, you fought and did not give up, perhaps knowing you were fighting to save me from a tortured mind and heart. Sincerely, Stephanie Sugar. See, why do you make me follow that up, right? <laughs> well, you don't have to. I just, no, no, I mean, no, no. It's, my it's, point it's, is, like, that's, yeah. that's what this movie means to me. Yeah. Like, that's all it's, there is something about the echo that a person's life has in someone else. And that last bit from her letter, you fought and did not give up, perhaps knowing you were fighting to save me from a tortured mind and heart. So the fact that in that (laughs) this, this giving purpose to each other, giving purpose to those in front of you and giving purpose to those behind you is something that I think gets lost when we look at war films, because we don't ever hear about this. We don't, we don't hear about letters from wives to soldiers of this amplitude. No. And the thing is, is that for a movie like this, this movie already had a heavy impact. It didn't need this, but it just adds to the, the real weight. Like this is, this is where the biopic, uh, curtain comes down and reality sets in. This is not a script written by some great screenwriter. This is the wife of someone who is 
giving someone permission to live, which I think is huge because this woman who knows nothing about what it's like to be in Somalia, boots on the ground, knows what it's like to have someone sacrifice. And there's so much power in that power to be able to give relief and to give permission for someone else to not be guilt, feel guilty about doing their job about, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's wonderful. I mean, that, that letter should be framed and it should be next to, I think every fallen soldier. Yeah, well, she, she has become apparently a, a very strong, um, supporter in the community, like, uh, of, of widowed, um, wives. So, um, she, I mean, I, no surprise. I mean, that woman is as strong as her husband. Right. So, uh, I just, I think it's, yeah, I think it's amazing that, that that's the story that they come out of this. And I mean, that's just an example, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not all teary right now because just because of Randy Sugar, but this is a, an exam. This is a, you know, this is, this can happen many, many, many times all over. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is just, everything wrapped into one of why these guys do what they do and why they care about each other the way they care about each other and what, how even a military spouse plays into that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. So thanks for letting me share. And uh, I hope that everyone listening uh, keeps that in mind that uh, maybe next time you watch this movie and, and this is not just an entertaining war movie no. to, to, to watch some people get shot and see some cool effects. It's, it's pretty much, it's a lot deeper than that it has, it has uh has meaning and purpose too. So mm-hmm. there it is. Well, and it has Eric Bana. So and it has Eric Bana. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's it for this one. Uh, let's wrap it up, Patrick. Yes, sir. If people want to contact you, where can they do that on the interwebs? Well, I'd love for you guys to continue the conversation that we've been uh, having tonight. Tears or laughter, whatever you want to bring to the table. Uh, you can find me at, uh, at the big three s- social media websites, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. Feel free to at me with any of your thoughts on this or any of our other episodes that we've covered in days, weeks, and months. And I guess now years past since we're bleeding into our almost second year coming up. Kind of unbelievable, man. I know. It's really amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So if you don't want to talk to us about this one, we have a couple of uh, big comic book movies uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, Thor Ragnarok and then Justice League. Uh, But we're also throwing in a mini-sode of Murder on the Orient Express. So a few action mystery, whatever's uh, a lot of fun coming at us the next couple of weeks. So I'm excited to talk about those. Yes, me as well. It's going to be a nice, awesome October, uh, not October. See, now I'm like totally rattled, but it's going to be great November. That's the <laughs> month we're in. Yay. Go November. Very, very thankful for these, uh, for these coming up. We are, we are. And we get to talk to our buddy, Andrew Dice again. Yes. Uh, every time we have a DC movie, Andrew Dice joins us, uh, the great screen rant writer, to talk about those. So he'll be with us for justice league, which always makes the good discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to talk to me further, you can find me anywhere online at Aaron L white, A A R O N E L W H I T E. You can also find me tweeting from the feeling film Twitter account. 
and Patrick and I are both in the Feel and Film Facebook group. That's where we like to direct everybody that we can because that's where the magic happens. Everybody is talking about movies constantly all week long, every day, and come post up your thoughts, post up your questions, and just interact and engage with other fans. We'd also really love to hear your thoughts on this episode. There's a post for that. Uh, just come and leave us your connecting point. Tell us what you had the the most emotional uh, moment for you was in this movie. Uh, we'd love to hear that as well. Also want to thank a couple new Patreon supporters, uh, both Josh from the LSG Media Podcast. I'll plug that again. Great stuff over there. Check out their work. Uh, Josh, thank you very, very much. Uh, we do appreciate it. And Gabe from the Underrated Podcast. So both podcasters, uh, fellow podcasts. So be sure and check out their shows as well. And thank you guys again. Um, we can't say it enough how much your support means to us, helps us keep going and, and doing what we love to do. Voting for the November donor pick episode is going to end the end of the day on the 10th. So if you're listening to this, you probably still have a couple of days potentially uh, to become a supporter and then help us choose the film that we're going to do for November from a selection of war movies to further celebrate or pay respects to Veterans Day. Honor it, I guess, is probably the right word. Yeah, that'd be the best way to say it. So we'd love to have you be a part of that family and help us pick those movies. You can do that for as little as $1 a month and uh, be in that elite club of supporters. You're also going to get a bonus episode this month. Uh, if you've listened to them in the past, if you've been a supporter, we're going to do some more trivia. And I got to tell you, these are <laughs> these are a lot of fun. And and if you want to know just how much Patrick and I don't know about movies, then you should you should become a supporter just to listen to these because they're absolutely it's hilarious. <laughs> it's 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 really us putting ourselves out there to be honest. <laughs> I look forward to them. Me too. All right, bro. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's been awesome as always. And I look forward to next week. But until then, listeners, always do the same thing. Stay positive. And keep feeling film.